to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights, and news so they can maximize their commercial programs and achieve best practice. The rise of social media influencers in recent times has meant that some have been able to create full-time jobs around their influence and followers. They certainly have some power. Now, simply put, influencer marketing is the process of identifying, researching, engaging, and supporting the creators of highly engaging and impactful content and conversations around your brand, services, or products. The value of influence over potential and current customers, however, isn't exactly a new concept in marketing. With the rise of digital marketing and social media in particular, however, information travels far and wide and can do so very, very quickly, especially when facilitated by others such as influencers. That's because they have large followings where they already have trust and influence, and they can use that to shape engagement and sentiment towards loving or shunning a brand. It all sounds very rosy, but it isn't always smooth sailing. The industry is rife with influencer fraud. Influencer marketing is home to one of the biggest, most elaborate and widespread scams in the history of marketing. If you've worked with influencers this year, chances are you've been part of this scam and it's cost you money. You're listening to Inside Sponsorship and welcome to episode 64. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston, and it's great to have you tuning into the show. I've wanted to do a show on influencer marketing for some time, not least because I find it fascinating that it has its own title and isn't simply called sponsorship. And so recently I saw a video on LinkedIn that caught my attention and I decided to get in contact with the company that made the video and invite somebody on the show. I'll play the audio of that video for you a little later before Oliver Yonchev, Managing Director USA at Social Chain, joins us to discuss influencer marketing. And before we hear from Oliver, Sam Irvine, Director, Customer Strategy and Success, Australasia at Sponserve, joins us to discuss his latest blog, which looks at how to handle a sponsorship breakup. Here's Sam. Sam Irvine, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Daniel. As much as I love you, it strikes me that... I was worried when you start, if you're going to start with a comment like that. Go as on, much yeah. as I love you, it strikes me that you probably got dumped a lot as a young fella. Fair or not fair? <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad that's that's a pretty good leading question. Uh, yes, especially I was I was a prop, so I was the chubby kid. So so yep. very well qualified, not just in the sponsorship <laughs> space, but also the relationship space too. The title of your blog this time around is "How to Handle a Sponsorship Breakup." It's like the intersection of the two greatest things that you have knowledge about. <laughs> but it does it does happen. All jokes aside, it does happen. Relationships either end. Uh, maybe badly, maybe just because they've they've run their natural course. And you've spent some time digging into it because it's not something uh, a sponsorship manager can avoid, can they? You're right. And, and, I, and I think, as you say, they happen, right? And so it's about learning from those, taking sort of steps to ensure that, I guess, in the future, if they do happen, you've done everything to avoid it being, you know, the rights holder's cause or if you work for a brand, if it's your cause. So uh, I think being able to embrace it um, and understand why why these things might happen is really key. So, Of course. And I don't think I've heard too many brands say to a rights holder, it's not you, it's me. There is a lot of learning to be done in what 
admittedly can be a pretty difficult, maybe even emotional, frustrating, pressured time in an organisation, particularly if they're a big sponsor, right? Yeah, and and having been in the position myself um, back when I worked with a rights holder, it's hard not to take it personal. So I think that's where um, having some steps in place and, and trying to sort of avoid some of these awkward discussions and make the most of that final term is really, really key. And I was speaking to some colleagues over the last three, four months, and it became apparent that for different reasons, partnerships do end. Um, some of it might have been caused by, by yourself, maybe not. But I think what, uh, what really got my brain ticking was how and why do you make the most of a bad situation? So where do we where do we start? Let's say a sponsor has said, look, we're not going to renew for whatever the reason is. We don't need to go into the reasons at the moment, but they've said, we're not going to renew. We're going to finish the relationship. What's your first move? I guess really the first move is understanding a little bit of the why. And you're right, I don't really want to hammer on about all the different examples as to why a partnership could end because we could be here all day talking about that. And the blame game could really become quite an ugly one. And so I think if, if it becomes apparent that a partnership is, um, I guess, if, if you're, it's, you're not going to be able to save it, then I guess really making those steps and taking down some notes to go, all right, what was the reasons? What learnings can we have from that, right? Was it a competitor in the market space? Was it um, a lack of budget moving forward? Did our brand or partner's objectives change and we can no longer service those objectives? Even their overall marketing strategy might have changed. Exactly. So it doesn't have to be a negative reason as to why it's, um, why it's ended, but really understand why at least a base level is key to start this process i think is there an opportunity despite the negative feelings that you might have as a rights holder is there still an opportunity for it to end on a high i think so i definitely think that and and speaking to a couple of examples that um that i've seen in the last few months is you want to still try and make the most of that final term right so how do you then really finish off on a high and, and, and it might be difficult right because you know your pride's been hurt a little bit or yeah. you want to start to to focus your attention on those partners that are staying rather than those that are going or, or maybe even your boss the ceo maybe or, or just your manager is putting the pressure on saying okay we've lost them wh- wh- where's the next one coming from and why are you spending time with them we've, we've already got their you know they've paid up their invoice etc right <laughs> and so i think um finishing off on a, on a high is really key and setting those expectations right because you've had you've developed a relationship and the last thing you want to do is for it to end based on, you know, a two-month period near the end of a season or near the end of a campaign that didn't go well, right? You want to be able to really make sure that that final term has been a positive one for a number of reasons, I think. How do we make the most of the rest of the term that they've got, whether it's short or long? Because sometimes they give you notice a year out. Sometimes it's, hey, can we talk about renewal? No. <laughs> Exactly. And if they've already said no, right, how do you make the most of that final term? And and why? Why are you trying to make the most of that? I think it was really key. So I think um, what you want to gain out of that at least is some feedback on the overall experience, right? If it's a little bit raw, don't, as soon as they've said to you, no, we're not talking about renewal, don't sit down and go, but why? Can you tell us why we've been good? Tell us the good things we've done, right? Wait, give it a little bit of time. But I guess really go back to them with a structured um, questionnaire or, or meeting process, et cetera, to understand what were the good things we did, right? Um Talk about possible referrals, especially if the feeling's still good, right? If if it is their marketing objectives have moved on or their budgets changed, etc. Um, you can definitely still use those relationships to create a referral, create a case study, for example, right? If you've done a really good activation 
with that partner um, or you've had a really good example of an ambassador that worked from your team or from your organization um, with that brand, then put some words together, get some sign off, get some quotes, really get some buying in on from them that you can use to business develop, that you can use to really tell your story in the future. We can't tell people where the line is. They're going to have to use their, their own value judgment on that. But we, there is a line where we want to get some information from the sponsor that's leaving, but we don't want to be a pest. And if we push too hard, they may just shut up shop and I'm not available and not get what you want. So we can't tell people where that line is. We can't say it's two emails and one phone call. So you're going to have to use your own judgment there, right? And and it's going to come down to the overall relationship too, I think there, right? Is that the minute you've been told there's no renewal on the cards, um, how do you take it? How do you then make that other party feel? Because they might not be feeling positive about having to move on either right like it might not be their decision potentially that you with your contact so i guess really it's about being strategic it's about being empathetic as well from even though you might feel the wrong you're the wronged party um what do you do to make sure that it's a it's still a comfortable situation that you can get the most out of out of that as well and and how do you really make sure that you're still seen in a really positive light by that brand um, and by your counterparts or your colleagues or other brands in the workspace because that industry is is usually pretty small and people talk etc so and of course if you explain to the sponsor that's not renewing that's moving on that you're coming from a place of growth and development and understanding they're probably going to want to help you if they don't feel as though you're asking those questions because you think you might be able to save them or your boss is just ask, making you ask them, right? It's that whole, I've just got to save a sale. I know I can save it if I'm as desperate <laughs> as possible. Just give me five minutes of your time. So I said before you might be under pressure from your boss. Why are you spending time with them? Who are we going with next? How are you going to replace them? That's a big hole. When is it okay to start shopping around and fill that hole? I guess for two things, one thing I want to touch on just briefly before that is by by finishing on a positive note and, and giving across, um, I guess, giving the brand that opportunity to still be involved in a relationship, you have a chance down the track to maybe rekindle a partnership. An example I use there is uh, West Coast Eagles and, and Hungry Jacks. A lot of people might not even know, but Hungry Jacks walked were not a partner of West Coast for a number of years and now back. Um, but, you know, their branding was so strong, their yeah, alignment with that. I didn't know. <laughs> exactly. Everyone just assumed they've been there this whole time. So it's re- well played by both parties, I guess. But um, I guess really that's a pos- potential positive outcome. Don't don't pin your hopes on the fact that if I treat this uh, sponsor like a, like a platinum partner, they're going to come back in two years' time anyway. But it's another potential there, right? Are there some things to be conscious of that you need to keep front of mind when you're going through this process about when you can start shopping around? Well, I think really you just want to be diligent, right? You want to really understand that you've been, you, you that you've really kept your cards open. You've shown them, um, uh, I guess, the key period of due diligence, right? There's an exclusive negotiation period, so you've said, all right, up until this date, we haven't been shopping around or we haven't sort of entered any negotiations at this stage you've given that brand that opportunity to be, to be the first to re-sign right and so you can hand on heart be confident that you've done your due diligence that you've done your contractual obligations in that space i guess being transparent is probably almost the most important 
part out of all of that, right? Surely that um, will give the brand confidence that, uh, you know, and, and, and a bit of trust, a little bit of transparency there really makes it a much easier discussion to have to go, hey guys, understand you're moving on. Surely now you understand that we have to now take a next step and start talking to potential competitors in that space. Um, but I guess as well, one of the big ones too is around an announcement, right? So how do you announce a breakup without it sounding like it's forced by one party or the other? How do you make it sound mutual when sometimes it might be really obvious that it's not a mutual parting of ways? Um, and I guess that's where uh, I've never been good at that. That can be the marketing gurus and the PR guys can worry about that. But I guess that's where having a still having some form of relationship, hopefully positive, with that brand will give you the tools and the ability to go, hey, let's let's put something out there. An example I saw was a really great announcement around the Sydney Sixers. Um, and a pet food brand that they were working with, right? Um, and the way that they'd sort of finished and the joint announcement that they made was a really positive one. And you felt like both brands were even getting some really great PR out of a negative potential story. I think the key there is that you can't spin it positively unless you've done a good job during the partnership, right? Because the brand's not going to want to be engaged. But if you've done what you said you were going to you were going to do and you help them achieve their objectives and they don't need you as part of your marketing anymore they're just like a case study like you said before they're probably going to going to want to help you and, and put out some positive uh, pr because that also benefits them oh definitely you're right and and by being towards the end right being as open as as possible to them and go here's um you know this is what we've thought about the whole contract of time together and it doesn't always have to be um positive if you if if you're willing to be to, to i guess hear those negative elements or you're willing to sort of take on some of that constructive feedback then be prepared to give it as well but right near the end and when you're starting to talk to new brands be open um and because a lot of the time you'll have to start talking to them during a big chunk of that current contractual period with your partner right so you it definitely i don't think it can hurt at all to be open especially if you've done your job if you're talking to a car brand that's a direct competitor with your current partner Surely, if you've done your job, you're not going to get negative press from your current partner in that space, right? Being open and transparent is going to make a big difference. And also a key thing there about being open with people, new partners that you're talking to is if the feedback from the partner that's not renewing is around things that are fairly common or or large issues in the industry and you're going into meetings saying, we've had this as an issue, we've identified it, we've got a plan to address it and that potential partner is having that problem with four or five other rights holders, you look great. Oh, goodness, you couldn't really have walked into a better meeting with a plan like that, could you? So I think the key message there is that the completion or a breakup of a partnership doesn't have to be completely negative experience. So listeners, if you'd like to read through all that great advice that Sam's just spoken through, just head to the blog section on sponsor.net and, where you uh, can make read sure through you, it. Make sure you check out that uh, picture Daniel's posted at the top, one of his best apparently. It's so. uh, definitely top three best blog pictures. So head along there. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thanks for having me. As I said at the top of the show, I've wanted to do an episode on influencer marketing for some time, not least because I find it fascinating that it has its own title and isn't simply called sponsorship. And so recently I saw a video on LinkedIn that caught my attention and I got in contact with the company that made that video and invited somebody on the show to have a chat about influencer marketing. As such, Oliver Yonchev, Managing Director USA at Social Chain, joins us to discuss influencer marketing. I'll now play the audio of that video for you. And of course, you can watch the video in the show notes at sponsor.net. 
And while the video focuses on the negativity of the fraud, in fact, when done correctly, influencer marketing is one of the most effective forms of marketing. So it is, in fact, immensely powerful. And Oliver outlines lots of great advice and examples to help you leverage influencers effectively. Here's the video with Oliver to follow. Fraud. Wrongful or criminal deception intended to result in financial or personal gain. The marketing industry will spend $1.6 billion on Instagram influencers this year alone, and that shows no sign of slowing down. By 2020, global influencer spend will be between $5 and $10 billion. In the next few minutes, I'm going to show you how and why this industry is home to one of the biggest, most elaborate, widespread scams in the history of marketing, and why this year alone, if you've worked with influencers, the chances are you've been part of a scam that's cost you and our industry hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Earlier this year, the CMO of Unilever, Keith Weed, announced the following. So we've made a commitment that we will not work with uh, influencers, creators uh, who uh, buy followers. This triggered a huge industry debate and one brand after another followed suit. But there were still questions unanswered. How do you define influencer fraud? How do you identify influencer fraud? And most importantly, how do you avoid it? At Social Chain, we dedicated the last six months of our global resources to building an AI tool to try and solve this very complex and misunderstood challenge. The conversation always centered on influencers' follower numbers. But the follower number means nothing. Other marketeers use the engagement per post as a method of identifying how influential a creator is. Currently, this is the most common way of deciding what to pay an influencer. However, there are now hundreds of apps that allow you to buy likes, views, and for a couple of dollars, you can buy and write your own comments. If you can fake it for a few dollars, it's not worth paying attention to. Forget the engagement number. Six months ago, we set out to build an industry-first tool to protect marketeers. The purpose of this tool is to identify how much of an influencer's engagement is real and how much of it is being faked. We call this their true engagement. What we discovered was deeply, deeply disturbing. In simple terms, the tool collects data from all of the largest engagement bot farms. It builds a database of tens of millions of fake profiles that these apps use to fake engagement. It then simultaneously scans hundreds of thousands of influencers to see which influencers are getting engagement from these apps. When it identifies suspicious activity, it produces an engagement graph for that influencer and uses AI technology to benchmark their engagement over time against real organic engagement graphs. It understands what paid promotion looks like, shoutouts, and other known algorithmic factors. This is how engagement should look on a post when it's organic. Here is the engagement graph of a fashion influencer that our tool alerted us to. For her privacy, I'm going to call her Jess. Jess has 230,000 followers. She's been paid by 22 different brands this year via agencies that book her for her apparently high follower number and engagement rate. She charges $1,000 per post. However, 96% of her engagement is fake, produced by a bot farm that charges $2 for 1,000 engagements. That means $960 out of that $1,000 that 22 different brands gave her this year was scammed. Unfortunately, she wasn't the only one. After scanning 10,000 influencers that brands and agencies work with frequently, we identified that more than 25% do, or have at one point, engaged in this type of manipulation. As a marketeer, in real terms, that means roughly 25% of the time, you could be being scammed of up to 95% of your investment. 
Social Chain is one of the largest social first marketing agencies in the world. We work with thousands and thousands of influencers every single month across five territories. From now on, we will only work with influencers that our tool whitelists as having true engagement. All of the brands we work with will be able to access this tool, screen their own databases, and have access to a blacklist of influencers who heavily manipulate their engagement. Influencer marketing can be tremendously powerful. It's one of the most effective forms of marketing when done correctly. And there are so many creators out there that are playing it fair, producing great content for real engaged audiences. But for those who aren't, they risk ruining the reputation of an industry for everyone else and hurting fledgling businesses in the process. It's time to clean up the industry. Oliver Yonchev, welcome to the show. We always start with an icebreaker or two, something light just to get us going and to help the audience get to know you a little bit. And your first icebreaker is... What brand do you think you'd be best suited to promote as an influencer on social media? Right. If I was if I was being the vain version of myself, I'll go for something high octane and big, and that's probably the romantic vision of uh, myself. I'd go for something like a Red Bull, uh, where I get to do cool things. And in reality, I'm going to pick something like a nutrition brand, a brand that I like, like a, a grenade or uh, and on it, I think um, we're always best suited to promote things that you do or services you enjoy anyway. Okay, so let's say Grenade or on it get in contact. They approach you to do an influencer post. This is the big moment you've been waiting for. You, they've said to you, you've got free reign, you've got no constraints. What sort of post are you executing? What <laughs> sort of post? Well, you know, first, I'm, I'm going to think about what, what platform I use. You know, there's a whole array of social platforms I could use. Um, and then if you think inherently what social media is, it's all about participation. Um, so I, I probably do something that involves me challenging others or getting other people to do. Grenade do a, a nut product. They just launched a nut bar. So I do like a go nuts challenge where I did something out of the ordinary. Um, and in doing so, I you know, challenge three of my mates or three of the influencers uh, to do the same type of Very good. Well, let's set the scene nice and early for the listeners. Just for those who may not know exactly, what is a social media influencer and what is influencer marketing? A social media influencer is really simple. Um, it's someone that has a social media following and it's someone that holds influence over that audience and when people think of social media influencers they usually think they have to have millions of followers and that's that's not the case you can have 1,000 followers and, and, and be an influencer you hold influence over the people that choose to follow you um, and then in terms of influencer marketing uh, specifically influencer marketing is employing those people or influencers or creators or whatever phrasing you want to call. And it's asking them to do something or promote something, and that could be to try and sell a product. It could be to attend something, to promote an event. Um, it could simply be asking them to create something for you. Um, they're inherently usually creative people. If you think about influencers, they've cultivated an audience. They've had to give value at some point to others, uh, which usually comes in the form of them being quite quite creative as individuals. And so you work at Social Chain. Can you tell us about your role there? I'm currently Global Business Director. 
And so I manage the uh, commercial output of the business. So I work across all our brands. Um, and a bit of context about the social chain. Uh, we operate five offices globally. Um, we've grown very quickly from uh, starting almost four years ago now. Uh, we've gone from two people to over 220. Uh, we work with world-leading brands and we help develop their uh, social strategies, their influencer marketing strategies, their creative strategies. Um, and then we help execute them in social environments. And, and we're kind of a business that's truly born out of social media. Why is influencer marketing actually a thing? What do you think are the key reasons behind the rise in the role of the influencers? Because people could just connect and engage with brands directly on social media if they chose to. I think it's a really straightforward answer. Uh, Influencers and influencer marketing is incredibly effective when done correctly. Uh, brands that have invested in influencer marketing before probably it became an industry uh, have, have reaped the rewards and been very successful, particularly in certain industries, uh, fitness, fashion, beauty, things of that nature. And and for me, I think influencer marketing is, is probably just the holy grail of marketing because of what it is in its basic format. Me as an individual of influence, telling people that like me, that follow me um, about something. And, and I, I hold trust over that audience um, and I'm recommending something to them. So if you just strip it back to what it is the action of influencer marketing is, um, suddenly it becomes really clear why it's so effective and why there is so much interest around it in the wider marketing industry. Now, a big issue in the wider marketing industry, and particularly with influencers, is influencer fraud. What is it, and how much of a problem is it? Influencer fraud is um, like any other the, the word fraud. <laughs> the word fraud is, is deceit. Um, in, in the social world, um, everything can be faked, which often means that users so people can buy fake followings. They can buy fake likes, shares, views, even comments. People can write their own comments and distribute them on their own content. Um, and actually, that is a problem until um, an industry has become commercialized. So people faking things for their own vanity, that's, that's one thing. Uh, but when suddenly brands are paying people based on what they believe is their engagement, believe is their following and that not being the case, um, that's where it's fraudulent. Uh, I think in its most basic form, it's, it's manipulation of social statistics. As we heard in the opening of the show, the CEO of Unilever, Keith Weed, announced that they will not work with influencers and creators who buy followers. I thought that was a bit strange because I'm not sure you could find a brand that would willingly want to do the opposite, to work with people who buy followers. However, it did spark a lot of debate around defining, identifying, and avoiding influencer fraud. Now, Social Chain has dedicated a lot of time and resources to trying to help solve these problems. Can you tell the listeners about that work? Kind of influencer fraud or the manipulation of influencer marketing became a really big talking point at Cannes, uh, this year's Cannes. And Keith Weed was kind of the instigator of this. And following Keith Weed's 
announcement that Unilever would start to take this stuff really seriously. And it's probably long overdue. There have been lots of questions around efficacy, ROI, um, manipulation. All these things have been surrounding the industry for, for quite a while, but it kind of came to a preface uh, across the summer. Um, Keith Weed came out publicly acknowledged this. So, so we went away and uh, we're not a software company. Uh, but we're a business that has worked in influencer marketing for since we started for four years. So we've probably made every mistake in the in the book. We've, uh, you know, you're dealing with people. Uh, people make mistakes, um, and uh, it, it's an industry in its infancy. So what we, as someone who's worked in influencer marketing for quite a while, we we quickly realised that um, the industry hadn't there wasn't a robust way to avoid or to figure out if people are manipulating their engagement. Um, and, and I'll give you two examples. So um, there are lots of software solutions that can give you an indicative indicator that someone has manipulated their following. So for a while now, probably in excess of two years, we could look at an influencer, look at their growth of following using software solutions, lots of free, sometimes more. Um, and we could say whether, with a degree of accuracy, whether they have bought followers, if there were any anomalies in their growth. And that's kind of a standard vetting process that good influencer marketing agencies would go through. Um, what the bigger challenge has been is um, follower size is only the start. The, the real thing that a, a company is paying for when they work with an influencer is their engagement. That means it's the only on-platform metric that we have that tells us whether um, an influencer talking about a topic or showcasing a product, whether their audience like and engage and, and care about the thing that they're talking about. So engagement really matters. Um, and engagement can be manipulated. But uh, we were asked questions by our clients, you know, can you check this for us? Um, and we have a lot, we invest in a lot of software solutions to allow us to um, to look at follower size and vet our influencers thoroughly. But there wasn't anything available. Uh, so we went to the drawing board and we said, how do we create this? Um, so as a result, we dedicated a lot of global resource um, and working with some third-party developers to, to bring a product to market called Likewise. And Likewise's job is to understand uh, manipulation. Its job is to understand where engagement has um, people have bought comments, likes, follows, um, we identify those, and, and what we found is we, we've amassed a database of over 10,000 influencers now that we've run through the system, and we've vetted a minimum eight of their posts. And what we've realized is that this is quite systemic. We understood that manipulation occurred, um, but we didn't realize how far. Um, what we have proven through our work is that up to 25% of all the influencers that we've sampled um, have manipulated their engagement at some point. So it, it's, it's quite alarming. And, and actually, as much as we understood that it was an issue in the industry, it wasn't until we actually did the work and started to monitor and analyze this data that we realized um, how systemic it was throughout the entire industry. So apart from not buying followers, one of the real obvious ones, in your opinion, what makes a great influencer? So to me, a, a great influencer um, is, is like what makes anyone great at anything. Um, it's, they've, they've got to be talented. 
they could be talented in the sense that they're just really creative. Um, you know, they may be great uh, visualizing things. They may be really entertaining. It doesn't have to be talented in the traditional sense that we think of a skill, um, but it could be talented. They may be charismatic. They may be really endearing. They may have good thought processes. They could be just a great thinker. Um, I think ultimately an influencer who gives value is a good influencer. What do you think are the marketing objectives that influencers are best placed to help a brand achieve? So this is a question as a business we are often asked a lot. Um, people use influencer marketing for um, business objectives, for marketing objectives, for social objectives. I think the best bit of advice I would say is um, influencer marketing can serve any purpose. If you ask a, uh, a fashion influencer to promote a product and show their audience to sell that, that they can do that. And they do that really effectively. Um, if you want them to migrate their following to, to look at your event or and go to your, you know, do something that, you're, uh, that you've asked them to do, they, they can do that. You could, if you could want them to migrate your followers across to yours, go follow your social feed. They can do that. I think the best bit of advice I could give is make it a singular proposition. I think as marketers, we far too often confuse things. I think have a single proposition and a single objective with each piece of content that you ask an influencer to do. In doing so, um, you'll help them achieve. I think a second part to that is influencer marketing is, is, is often brands dip their toe in it. They will try and work with something. Marketing period doesn't always work. I think that's a given that it doesn't always work. Um, but what the key component of influencer marketing is um, doing it consistently, learning, evolving, changing like you would any other strategy. There are a lot of nuances, although it's very basic in its execution or can be basic, it's me asking someone to do something and they do it to their audience. And there are a lot of nuances that um, have to be employed to ensure that you do it correctly and you do it effectively. I think that's a great point because it's definitely a part of marketing where you're handing over a fair amount of control with a social audience where you don't really get to control the conversation that might have happen on somebody else's social media profiles. And I think the point around the singular focus should be one that is uh, really picked up by the audience, that singular focus. What are you really clear about that one thing that you want to achieve out of that execution? So let's say a brand has budget. They're ready to spend it on, on its next campaign. Why do you think they should choose an influencer over more traditional channels that might say that they can deliver the same objectives? Influencer marketing should play a role in a marketing mix. A healthy marketing mix should have balance. And why I'm probably a bigger advocate of influencer marketing is, is probably to your last point, is the fact that um, although you give up control, you can actually take more risks as a brand working with an influencer. So, for example, um, if I'm Coca-Cola, um, there's a certain thing on my own channel, there's a certain expectation of the things that Coca-Cola would say about themselves. And, and, and those things don't often work very well in social environments. They're not very shareable. They don't encourage conversation. And by working with an influencer, you can allow them to interpret your message in their own way, which means brands have an opportunity to take more risks. It's not Coca-Cola talking about themselves and broadcasting that message. 
it's having a person of influence talk about them in their own way. So, so for me, that that singular um, that singular idea that an influencer um, can allow brands to be braver in their communication, to be more authentic, and that for me is why influencer marketing should play a key role in in a marketing strategy. So apart from audience and reach, the ability to take a little bit more risk, that singular focus and idea, are there any other things that a brand really does need to pay attention to and needs to weigh up before going down and choosing the influencer path? I think first and foremost, the bit of advice is don't care about the follower size. The follower size means nothing, particularly if it's been manipulated. I think the second, the second thing to consider is and as a brand, you should just work with people that um, use you. Too many brands um, work with people that don't care about them, that don't use them in their daily lives, that aren't fans of them anyway. And a really good starting place is just working with people that genuinely like you anyway, or that want to like you through your relationship with them. Um, in terms of identification, I think it's important that you treat influencer marketing like other channels. You have steps approach. You know, in the identification stage, it's really important that you have software solutions that allow you to identify people correctly via their ensuring that their audience is right, not just on age, demographic. Then you have to vet them and ensure that the type of content you could they produce is the type of thing that you want that resonates with your brand. You want to work with people that um, share the same identity as you or similar identities, you know, Red Bull work with really high-octane influencers that do outrageous things because that's part of their core identity. Um, I think the, the the last bit then is you have to manage that process well. The, this is not the same as buying media. Too many people look at it purely for their audience. And um, if you strip it back, when you work with an influencer, you were asking them to do three things. You were asking them to license their IP, their recommendation, their influence. You're asking them in many cases to create something for you. And usually then creating something for you is a much more cost-effective way to produce something than it would be to hire a production crew. And then the third part of that then is then you're tapping into their audience as well. So you're not just buying an audience. It isn't the same as buying media. Um, And it has to be treated differently. So that's where the element of social chain, um, our influencer managers are influence relationship managers. Um, and, and equally, we've got to work, we have a responsibility to work with influencers so they understand their worth. Um, you should pay an influencer what they're worth. And if they're creating something amazing and outrageous, or their audience is small, maybe you pay them more because they're incredibly creative. You know, you, there, there's no set rules to what you should pay. Um, but there are frameworks, I think, that agencies and, and brands that work in influence might have a responsibility to, to work collaboratively with influencers to figure out those questions and bigger questions you spoke earlier about when i asked the icebreaker question you spoke about first choosing what platform you might execute your post on but we know instagram is is known as a hotbed for influencers is it actually worth looking outside of instagram to execute on influencer marketing or should we just really just stay in the instagram section Uh, i would i would say depending on what your industry is it's completely like anything else um for example one of the biggest risers um is in, in the social platforms and native use and, and let's take a, a demographic 
of 35 to 50-year-old women. The biggest rise is in confess in certain territories. And again, it depends what country you're in. Um, for example, in the UK, we use WhatsApp. In the US, they don't really use WhatsApp. Uh, so social platforms vary by territory. But what I would say is uh, be completely platform agnostic. If you work in fashion, beauty, fitness, um, food even, those visual environments like Instagram are very effective. Um, if you're making children, marketing, sports, and things where you have to create a bit more depth in your message, I would look at YouTube. YouTube influencers can incorporate what it is you're doing into their day-to-day lives. Um, and it's a very different type of content. Equally, um, working with thought leaders in a Twitter environment, that's often overlooked. I think each platform has an opportunity that is totally dependent on your industry. And I think you have to think of how we're using the platforms in our day-to-day. So, for example, influencers that um, are successful in Facebook are usually people that create really cool, interesting, shareable um, video content. There are huge influencers in Instagram that don't produce video content, but are just great photography because it's still a very visual platform. So, and the platforms often dictate the type of things that are produced and hence the type of influence you should work with. But um, I'm a firm believer that actually in areas where it's starting to get saturated, like Instagram, I think it's sensible that you should start to look outside of Instagram as well. Um, but again, if you work in fashion, sports, things, certain industries, um, that will probably dictate where your audience is spending their time. So I'd use that as a starting place. You just spoke about saturation on Instagram. How much money is being spent on influencer marketing on Instagram? Um, so uh, the honest answer is a lot. I think on Instagram alone, um, I believe it's $1.6 or $1.8 billion is being spent on influencer marketing on Instagram alone. Billion or million? Billion. It's astronomical, the amount of money that is being spent. Um, if you look at, I will speak uh, freely in kind of two markets. We have a strong presence in, so being the UK and US. So in the UK, social media and influencer marketing accounts for 17% of media spend or approximately that figure. Um, in the US, it accounts for about 17.6% of media spend. So um, yeah, influencer marketing is, is becoming real big business. And that's probably why bigger questions are now being asked because brands that are now shifting budget, especially looking forward into next year into influencer marketing, they want the safeguards and the protections. Um, just to quickly go back to the point around, uh, I suppose, fraud that I didn't mention before, the the, the manipulation is, is simply just a byproduct of it being a new industry and an opportunism and taking advantage of, of the fact that it can now be commercialized. You know, every uh, big shift in media spend has had probably something comparable. If you look at um, SEO, uh, SEO had a real issue. Um, you know, the programmatic world had a huge issue with with with, with fraud and viewability and, and what's actually being created. So I think there's opportunities all across the industry, but I think as an industry, if we all take collective responsibility to, you know, um, give it the respect it deserves as an industry, um, you'll start to see over the next, the coming months, the coming years, that it'll, it'll stabilise and become a safe place to invest your money. 
I think it's a great point around other mediums and and media also having their challenges, particularly around the SEO one. That's been, you know, there was a lot of change in the sort of the the middle years. Uh, where people were keyword stuffing and scraping content and things like that. And over a period of time with good practice, those things settle down. But one other thing that we can do to mitigate some of that risk is set up contracts legal with legal obligations. What's the best way, do you think, to set up a contract with an influencer? And is there much difference between an influencer who might be represented by an agent or an agency or one who manages themselves? I think the way you treat them would be very differently. So um, an influencer um, may not have an agent. And that often means that as an individual, um, you can probably, you may choose to negotiate harder with them because it's direct to them. An agent will be probably a little more commercially savvy, but I think you have an ethical responsibility to to manage those relationships fairly. And we've in many cases um, told an influencer they're worth more than they're quoting because that is sustainable for us and for for us to build a correct relationship. And ultimately, it serves our clients best if we have those relationships. Uh, To go to the legal requirements, I would have a standardized contract. Um, And it depends on the complexity. So we work in some industries that are um, heavily regulated, for example, uh, betting or alcoholics, certain things of that nature. So it's really important that um, brands understand that if you work with an influencer and they don't follow their compliance obligations, you are responsible as a brand. So it is important to safeguard them and to safeguard you that you have rigid contracts in place. These aren't lengthy contracts, um, but these are certainly just clear obligations. And these contracts should include um, guidance on what they have to do to be compliant in terms of declaring the ad, things of that nature. It should include their deliverables and their minimum expectations. Um, But an important point on contracts is um, I heard a phrase at a conference used uh, with influencers uh, about influencer marketing, and I really loved the phrase, and it was um, create uh, create relationships, not obligations. So in terms of working with an influencer, if you're just wanting to get X amount of views, and that's a contractual commitment as a minimum amount of views, probably don't use influencer marketing. That's not necessarily the right way to, or the right mindset to approach those contractual negotiations. But I would loosely have your their commitments mapped out, their minimum commitments, and maybe some targeted commitments. That maybe that these are what we need to be your minimum, but we would love you to do these things. And then naturally, the, the protections and safeguards as a brand. Um, short, sharp, concise contracts that I think protect both parties is a healthy thing. There's some outstanding advice in there, lots of of great pieces for people to pick up on. In your opinion, what's more effective? Is it building a long-term campaign around an influencer, say over 6, 12, 24 months, or is there more value in using them in shorter doses to leverage a campaign? So my opinion on this is both, and and I'll explain what a contradictory statement that is. Um, I'm a firm believer that consistency in marketing is incredibly important. Whether um, we talk about media and frequency and consistency being important in media buys, it's equally important to influencer marketing. And some influencers have become essentially jobs boards. Um, And if I talk about you one time, my audience may switch off. If I talk about you for three months, there's a good chance they may listen. 
So in the simplest sense of what we do as marketeers, I think it's really important to know that consistency is very important. However, um, I think it's important you learn from influencer marketing. I'll give you a specific example. Uh, we work with a really high, um, a really a global um, fashion retailer. Um, and we they have 750 girls on retainer, as in they pay them on a monthly basis. They invest 40% of their global budgets in influencer marketing and have done for some time. And they're reaping the rewards of that commitment. Um, what what they have done, our most effective campaign we ever did with them, was over short, sharp, condensed, high-volume commitments with girls in a really short period um, that essentially flooded news feeds because what you find is a lot of people follow similar influencers across the category. So in, in doing these high-frequency bursts, we saturated news feeds and got real cut through at key moments tactically for that business. And the main thing we got off the back of that is we created a tributation model where we gave each girl unique codes and we could track how much product they were selling. Um, and in doing so, we ended up over a short tactical burst, we ended up with um, data insight of the top 20 girls out of the 300 that we used over a two-week period. We had the top 20 that sold the most product. So that provided them that they're the girls that we should work with on a long-term retained basis because we know they're generating revenue. And then what we did over the, the, the coming months is introduce new people. And then we'd reevaluate. So 12 months into a project, you're suddenly left with a list of people that their audience are responding really well to your messaging. They're hitting your business objectives. Um, and you're getting invaluable data that can actually shape your business in a, in a far greater way in terms of product development then pushing you to ambassadors that say, you like this product or this product. And you can get lots of quick insights. So I'm a firm believer, build long-term relationships, but don't overlook short-term tactical moves in influencer marketing. So how can marketers and brands get talent and influencers to be more or really engaged within a, a campaign or a relationship as opposed to simply reading a script or posting what is just a, a really lazy, shameless plug? What sort of direction and, and scripting or context should a brand be providing an influencer for their posts? I think um, you should never script an influencer because their audience, it will have a, a counterproductive uh, effect your intent will will fall on deaf ears. Um, a good example of this is, um, I don't know if uh, you saw the example, but Listerine, um, a mouthwash, uh, used uh, an influencer to promote their mouthwash. And she created an image, um, and that image was the perfect morning. You know, she woke up, she looks beautiful, like she wakes up like that every day. Um, she had these pancakes laid out that were actually tortilla wraps. She had like dream written all over. And she created the perfect morning and put a Listerine bottle on the side. And, and the copy was written by Listerine. It was very evident. The media backlash, and at first it was actually, it blew up in the UK. It was astronomical that um, this backlash was actually unfair on the influencer. She got trolled, she got death threats. It really blew out her escalation. And that all stemmed from her audience going, what rubbish is this? This is this is you being fake. This isn't an authentic relationship. This isn't the reason why we follow you. The right way for a listener to have done that was to go, 
um, she, for her to, you know, go in her Instagram story and say, this is my morning routine. You know, a big part of that. I want to feel fresh in the morning. I want to use it. So in listening, dictating and scripting what she had to say, they face great risk. So it's actually counterproductive. What I think you should do is work with the influencer at the decent stage. Like when we work with influencers, particularly in a more long-term basis, we ask their opinion on, we've got this message. How would you interpret it? What things do you like? Have you got a backstory that supports this? Um, and then in doing so, you, your output is so much better than that. And you, the quality of your output is so much better. Um, so I, I think the short answer is don't script influencers. Give them loose guidelines um, and, and make sure then the guidelines are based on the do nots. So here's my message. These are the things you can't do. You can't take this image in front of and Coca-Cola. Make sure there isn't a Pepsi can inside. You know, like real basic. These are the do not, but these are the do things you interpret that in your own way. And if you've taken the step to identify and work with the right people in the first place that like you, that have the right audience, then then you should trust them in doing so and interpreting your brand in the right way. If we trust them, there is some inherent risk in there. We can provide them guidelines about what to do and what not to do. We can get their their input. You mentioned earlier that one of the great things about using an influencer and using their profiles is that you can take a little bit more risk with what you're posting or what they're posting. But do you actually find brands are willing to play outside their corporate guidelines a little when handing over posts to influencers like that? Or do you, in reality, despite what you might think is best practice, do they still try and exert a lot of control and try and make that influencer conform like Listerine did? Yeah, God, no. I wish um, brands would be more receptive. Um, it's brands come to us all the time um, and they go, um, we are a bank and we want to be daring. We want to be irreverent. We want to be creative and innovative. Um, but they don't. They're lying to themselves. They're not They're not true to themselves. Um, by the set, I, I could have a, uh, a, a bias to join this because if you come to Social Chain to work with us, um, one of our core values is being fearless. Um, in terms of our creative execution. So if you're working with the social chain, um, the chances are you're wanting to take a risk. We're not an agency to tick a box. We're an agency for businesses that want to take risks and break records and do creative work. And that's kind of what we stand for. So we will have a balance view equally. I believe the agencies, all the marketing managers, all the people within brands have a responsibility to say no we, on a daily basis, tell people that you cannot, this will not be effective. And I think the more honesty and transparency that you have, you end up with a healthy push and pull. That's not to say we as an agency are right all the time. We just be as honest as we can in an appraisal of a brief or in uh, an appraisal of um, how people are working with influencers. We advise, and you know what, the end product is you usually end up with a healthy balance. I think that's I think a healthy push and pull where you've got someone that is safeguarding the brand, that's not a bad thing. But equally, there's a middle ground that often can be met that results in the best output that provides the security that a brand often requires, especially ones in the, um, say, larger corporate arena. We see lots of influencers posting on social media, obviously. We see them incorporating brands in their posts, obviously. But what are the rules 
around transparency in regards to posts being paid for? So in transparency, uh, laws vary by country, but a holistic universal law is that it has to be declared. So if I work with a brand, all the platforms, this is only evident in the last two years, but all the platforms allow me to do an in-partnership with. If I'm on Instagram, so it's me working, if I'm on Facebook, you know, that I'm working with this brand. So you would tag them in their handle. That's a, a minimum platform commitment. Um, you also have to declare it's either hashtag sponsored or hashtag ad. Here's a variation. In the UK, and about three weeks ago, they re-evaluated the gold standard as hashtag ad. You have to be explicit in your position. But the more things you do from a copy point of view to contextualize that, um, an influencer should not hide the fact they're working with a brand. Especially, And again, it goes back to working with brands that you love. Um, if an influencer truly uses you or works with you and would want to attend an event anyway, um, they will communicate that correctly. And they should own that and be very upfront to their audience that I am working with this brand because I love them. This is so amazing. This is a cool dress. These guys help me get through my workout. You know, I love this sport and club. Whatever it is, it, uh, whatever arena you're in, um, I think following those processes is really important. Yeah, it's an interesting point about not hiding that they're working together because there's sponsors all over the world that and rights holders all over the world that are really public and, and celebrate the partnerships that they have with people. They don't try and hide it. So I think that's a really interesting point to, to make. You spoke before about how sometimes you give advice that influencers aren't charging enough. How do influencers typically charge? Is it a cost per post or cost per follower regardless of KPIs or is it on cost per click or even something else? Influencers usually charge by three things. Um, One could be simply gifting. So you give them a product. They don't have a contractual obligation to talk about you, but in most cases they, they may do. And that's how influencer marketing kind of started in infancy. Um, the second part of that then is there's affiliate models like other things. So in fashion, a lot of people are paid on how many products they sell and they get a percentage. So the people set up affiliate links. That's not fully evolved in a lot of industries. It's evolved in fitness and fashion and beauty, but thereafter not so much. Um, and then the third part is a transaction just on what they price. And it truly is the wild, wild west. So if you've been, you've cultivated an audience really quickly over a year, and, and brands start to pay attention to you and you start to get requests. You have no idea how to charge for yourself. And that's probably why the safeguarding of an agency uh, to help you commercialize what it is you do is, is, is a good thing. Um, agents obviously have to make margins. So as much as they're protecting, they will elevate their value. And um, typically the industry has, um, has valued their uh, put their value based on their follower size. But as we've said before, the follower size means nothing. So what um, what the industry is starting to evolve to is is kind of your actual reach, your engagement rate, and um, your volumes of engagement. So for example, um, if I have a million followers and I produce a post and a thousand people like it. That's a really low engagement rate. But the only thing that really matters is that thousand people that like the post, that have interacted with me as a brand or a brand piece. Um, The second part of that is, however, on the flip side of it, if I have 10,000 followers 
and I have a thousand people like my post, that's a good engagement rate. That's 10%. That's the same value as the person with a million followers, but a really low engaged audience, which would be an indicator of a fake following or just a disengaged audience. So um, in terms of how the industry is pricing, there isn't a set formula. What I would use is I'd use some common sense. I think the industry is starting to um, price themselves according to what you would expect to pay on a cost of view uh, across standard digital industries. But you've got to factor in that you're not just asking them, you're not just buying their audience, you are asking them to create something. You are le- leveraging their IP. So you generally would expect to pay a premium for those things. Are we able, I had a couple of questions here about setting the scene with 2 million followers and what sorts of ballpark costs and what sort of uh, results I might be able to expect, but it sounds, listening to you there, that there's so many different variables. As you said, it's the wild, wild west and different engagement and objectives and all that sort of stuff. Are you able to maybe piece together a bit of an example where you know you can talk about you know maybe an instagram influencer who has a volume of followers and and they got this and they got that and this was the outcome for the brand yeah for sure it's kind of economies of scale so as an influencer they're looking their work is often very infrequent even a popular influencer doesn't they may have one off a brand that's a post, a brand sends them something. Infrequent. What an influencer wants is stability and to be invested in a project like all of us are in, in, in all our work. So, um, a good way to get a really good rate on an influencer is put them on a retainer, put them on three months, and these are your minimum obligations. You become an ambassador. Um, if you post more or share more or talk about us more, then naturally that will mean that we're more likely to put you on a longer retainer. You know, you can use the things that we use in marketing to negotiate really favorable rates that favor both parties. In terms of specific costs, as a ballpark, we tend to categorize people into categories of influencers. So um, let's start with like a nano-influencer. A nano-influencer is someone with 10,000 followers and below. They're, you know, someone that might be really invested in a product. They'll have a really high engagement rate. Um, and you may use lots of them in a gifting program, but you probably wouldn't pay them. Then you have micro-influencers. Is everybody sub 100,000 followers? Um, a micro-influencer, again, I wouldn't expect to pay a micro-influencer a lot. Um, 200 pounds, what's the exchange rate in Australia? So double that, maybe, um, for someone with 100,000 followers to get them to do a post, uh, an Instagram story, two pieces of content. Would you pay them? Um, a couple of hundred dollars, maybe, if they're highly engaged and they respect the band. Um, then you go from uh, mid-tier influencers that I would say is everyone from about 250 to a million followers. And these are people that have probably commercialized their platform before. So those people, you'd expect to pay around the 500, uh, 500 pounds, so what, $900 uh, Australian dollars. Uh, and then you go into uh, 1 million plus. So 1 million plus, if their audience is true and authentic, 1 million plus is what we would call A-graders in many cases, de- defining by territory. And, and, and actually, you could pay per post anything up to um, 5,000, but you're actually 5,000 pounds or $10,000, anything up to $20,000, dollars if you're asking them to attend events, to fly somewhere, to post multiple times over a project. Um, you can start to play a lot. 
speaking um, but you are uh, essentially in this celebrity remit at that point. Um, and there are influences out there that the vast majority of people over 25 have never heard of, but everyone under 25 has heard of them. And, and, and that's kind of the, there's a big divide in it. Some of these people hold immense influence over their younger audience. Which are generally audiences that brands find tough to access, don't they? Yeah, because it's supply and demand. It's totally um, it's supply and demand. And if you think of just in terms of youth marketing in general, um, if you go young, young, if you're in that arena, um, it's heavily regulated and rightly so, which means brands that want to market to children find it difficult. And influencer marketing is an area that is of interest to them for natural reasons. But there are, again, a lot of rules behind that. Um, in general, youth marketing as a whole is, we know young people have switched off to, they don't trust advertising. The environment, the, the volume of information they see on a daily basis um, means that they're skeptical towards ads. They don't watch as much traditional TV as more. They're viewing content in different ways. So I think it's an important factor for sustainability of established brands that aren't necessarily in the business of youth marketing or speaking with young people. I think it's important they're very aware of shifts in behavior because young people don't stay young people for long and their behaviors will probably carry through with them. (laughs) Which brands are doing influencer marketing really, really well and what are some great examples? Uh, So which brands are doing it really, really well? I, I would say the people that are doing influencer marketing best um, have to be the brands that have used influencer marketing to build their business. Um, For example, take like an apparel brand in the fitness space is like Gymshark. And they've created a global business from purely working with influencers and ensuring that lots of influential people that look great are wearing their stuff. It's as simple as that. And they've done that for a long time. And that's formed the foundation of what is now a pretty big business. Um, other brands, I think you can take a leap from the likes of Adidas. So again, I think in the fashion category, um, Adidas, Nike, Nike, um, Nike's use of ambassadors is really smart. So they get this really good hybrid of using real A-listers, their A-list sporting talent, and, and, and mixing that with kind of grassroots athletes. They do this, they did a project called, uh, uh, Nike Londoner, and it, the, the essence was what it truly means to be a Londoner. Um, and their influencer execution was exceptional, mixing top-tier talent, but actually putting the small people and top-tier talent from the center of their brand activity. So they create, they have layers to what it is they're doing. Um, and then finally, someone else who's done it exceptionally well in the fast fashion space, although I'm not a fan of their social strategy, I think the content they produce is rubbish. Um, there's a company in the US called Fashion Nova, um, and they do they what they've created is uh, this thing called Nova Babe, which means that and they've got they've got um, set, I think the estimates are around seven thousand girls participating in this Nova Babe movement, and what you get is, is people that aspire to be influencers um, start to want to participate in Nova Babe, but these people have ten thousand followers because they want to get the attention of they use top-tier talent, the Kardashian effect, um, all people of that nature to 
to really drive the funnel and create a groundswell of people wanting to be overbathed. So they've done a really good ownership um, movement that they've done. So I think fashion and power brands have led the way purely through the fact that they have been in the industry probably the longest. Apart from increased spend, where do you see the influencer marketing segment going in the future? This is a good question. I think um, the industry is moving into an age of, of transparency. Um, in general, I think this is universal across the marketing spectrum, uh, where uh, I think all the things we discussed earlier about being upfront, I think that will become standard. I think people that don't do that will face backlash. Um, I think influencer marketing will evolve to the point where um, probably the industry at the minute is underpriced. So if you work in influencer marketing, you can get great deals. I think that starts to fade as, as it becomes more evolved and more agents involved and it's commercialized uh, in that sense. So I think as it grows, um, the, the the steals of influencer marketing, the like incredible value starts to go away. And then I think we move into an age where almost you've got this ambassador-esque where you, you, you're Influencer marketing becomes more about nurturing your own audience, your super fans, people that are passionate about you on a on a on just a day to day level, and they suddenly become your influencers. So brands that figure out how to mobilise their own audience will be the brands that are really successful, I believe, going into twenty nineteen and twenty twenty, and that will be the next phase. That will be very interesting to watch and keep tabs on indeed. Oliver, if people want to connect with you or learn more about Social Chain or even likewise, what can they do? They can reach out to us. So if they want to learn more about us as a business, um, our website is socialchain.com. Anyone, feel free to reach out to me directly. Um, My email is dead straightforward. Um, And you can reach out on social media. So uh, we've got social handle, uh, Oliver Yonchev at, um, depending on the platform. So uh, feel free to connect. Um, anyone that wants to email directly, uh, send a message directly to me from the website. And uh, yeah, happy to help. Excellent. And listeners, as always, we will put all those links in the show notes. Oliver Yonchev, Business Director at Social Chain, thank you so much for taking us inside Influencer Marketing. Awesome. Thank you, Daniel. Really appreciate the time. Take care. Fascinating insights and advice from Oliver. As I said, that chat was sparked by a video that Social Chain produced that focused on influencer fraud. So if you would like to see the video itself, just head along to the podcast under the resources tab at sponserve.net. While you're there, you'll find all the details to connect with Oliver and find out more about Social Chain and their work. That's a wrap for episode 64 of Inside Sponsorship. I hope you loved it. And also, don't forget, if you'd like a shout-out, because I didn't get any this time, just get in contact and I'll make that happen. We really would love to hear from you. Or if you're too shy, help us feel special by leaving a review on iTunes. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at Sponserve. And if you want to connect with Sponserve's director, customer strategy and success, Australasia, Sam Irvine, you can catch him on sam at sponserve.net. Don't forget that you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and, of course, Instagram. Just search for Sponserve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship.
Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, head to sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn.